Good morning, guys. My name is Monty Spurgeon, and I am the Associate Pastor of Family Ministries here at Fellowship. And I get the chance to lead our children in student ministry and love the work I get to do. And so excited this morning to share God's word with you. As Paige mentioned last weekend, we got to celebrate 25 years at Fellowship, and it was uh, an amazing service. I know like many of you guys, I walked away just so inspired uh, by the men and women who've gone before us and really to celebrate what God is doing in our midst. And as I was hearing the stories on stage, I can't help to even think about my own story at Fellowship. Six years ago this week, actually, my wife Molly and I, that we moved here to Nashville to work on staff at Fellowship. And it was kind of a, a step of faith for us because as we were coming here, we didn't really have many friends. We knew a few people. We didn't have any family. But Molly was six months pregnant. And we had a nine-month-old. And we came here on a Wednesday. We were so eager to get here, eager to move our things in. Later that night, I was supposed to be at the church for my first uh, event with student ministry. And so I was ready to get in there. Uh, but as we started moving things into our house, the moment we walk into our townhome, we take a step into it and the entire townhome is completely flooded. So our landlord, she had come by the day before to turn the AC on. And when she did, it leaked. And I mean, when we walked in, the floors were buckled. It was a disaster. And so Molly and I, we sit there together and just <clears throat> trying to figure out what, what we're going to do. And I remember in that moment, even tears in her eyes, just thinking like, who are we going to call? Like, what do we do? And so it's getting time for me to get to the church. And so I leave and go to the church and I do this event that we have. And it's this ice cream Olympics. It's this crazy game. Probably the last thing you want to do when you're sitting in this place that I'm at. But afterwards, we had this chance to uh, meet our families. And I get a chance to talk to our families. And in that moment, the Lord had prompted my heart just to share with these families what was going on, which was totally unlike me. But in that moment, I stepped into it and I kind of just shared with our families what was happening. And I'll tell you, what, it, what I experienced that first day at fellowship, it marked me. Because even many of these families that are in this room today, that when the service had ended and people started to leave, and I had all these families that were lining up out the door. And one by one, families that were coming to pray over us, to offer their resources, their time, their home, anything they could do to help my family in that moment. And what I experienced that moment and what I have seen to be so true about this church is that the people of fellowship, they care for one another. And I know for me personally, I'm so blessed to be a part of this body of Christ and to be a part of what God is doing in this church. And so this morning, Rob and Lloyd, they're at the Franklin campus and they're getting to do this 25th celebration with the Franklin congregation. And so they've asked me to come in and to teach the second part of John chapter 13. So if you guys uh, were here a few weeks ago, one of our elders, Mike Vogt, he did a beautiful job unpacking the first part of John 13. And really in that text, what we see is that Jesus, he's washing the feet of his disciples. And as he's doing this, he's demonstrating this love. He's demonstrating this unconditional love for his disciples because what we know that in the next 24 hours, many of his disciples are gonna turn their back on Jesus. Yet in this moment, Jesus, he's showing up with unconditional love and he's washing their feet. And it was such a beautiful text. And Mike, he had asked this question. He said, you know, if Jesus, if he can wash the feet of the man who's about to betray him, then what is keeping you and me from performing and doing these similar acts of kindness and service to those around us? You see, in John 13, what we see, it's an invitation that we would begin to prioritize the needs of others above our own. And it's this beautiful picture of God's love for Jesus' love as he demonstrates it to his disciples. And so this morning, as we continue in John 13, what I want you to understand is this theme of love is gonna continue in this text. 
at the core of John 13. We know this, right? If you know about the story of Judas, it's a story about betrayal. And so when we talk about this story, so often we run it through the lens of what Judas is gonna do, but I want you to understand something this morning, that this passage is so much more than just a story about betrayal. It far exceeds that. As we dive into the narrative of this story that we begin to see and encounter this love and this mercy and this grace and this compassion and the relentless pursuit of Jesus all throughout the text. That I think sometimes when we read this text, we think of it as an encouragement to how to love your enemies. But I want you to know something this morning. It is so much more profound than that. It is more than just loving your enemies, but it's about receiving the love of Jesus in such a way that not only transforms your life, but it begins to transform the lives that are around you. And so as we get into the text this morning, what we're gonna see is an invitation from Jesus to love others the way that he loves you and me. And that's hard to do but we get to see Jesus demonstrate it for us. And so as we get into the text this morning, an outline I want you to kind of look at as we follow the text is gonna be this. In verses 21 through 26, we're gonna see the betrayal. In verses 27 through 30, we're gonna see the departure of Judas. Then in verses 31 through 38, we're gonna see how Jesus meets his disciples in that moment and he helps them move forward. And so let's jump into our text this morning. Verse 21, as we look at the betrayal, says this, after saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and he testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. So it's important to understand that this is now the fourth time that Jesus is pointing to this betrayal that's about to take place. Three other times through John 13, he's mentioned this. And so in fact, when Jesus says, after saying these things, he's referring to what he had said back in John 13, verses 16, 17, and 18, as he quotes this Psalm passage. And as he quotes this passage, Jesus says that he who receives the bread is gonna turn his heel against me. And so it's in this moment that Jesus is speaking about this betrayal that we begin to see and understand that Jesus knows exactly what's going on. That he's in this room and he's not being fooled by anyone. He knows exactly what Judas is thinking. He knows exactly what Judas is gonna do. And I love for John, as John's writing this, that John is paying close attention to Jesus. He's paying close attention to the emotion that Jesus is feeling right now because he describes it, that, that he was troubled in his spirit and he was terrified, and he testified, I'm sorry. And so what I want you to understand, it's important to understand this word troubled because it's the exact same word that we see in scripture multiple times. As Jesus is described as, his troubled spirit that in, in uh, John 11, verse 33, as Jesus is standing before his friend Lazarus at his grave, that it talks about his heart is troubled, that his eyes are full of tears, that he can't hold them back. And then again, in John 12, 27, we see the same thing where Jesus is speaking of the glorification. He's speaking of the cross and the things that go ahead of him, that he's gonna die. And he says to them, my soul is troubled. And so I want you to understand the significant weight and the emotion that Jesus is feeling in this moment, that his heart is troubled, that his spirit is troubled as he's thinking about who is gonna betray him and what I love in this moment, that it's almost as if Jesus is opening up his heart for us to get a glimpse of what's inside of him. Because in this moment, you have to think guys, he is hours from being crucified. He's hours to being put to death. And yet in this very moment, his heart is heavy 
His heart is troubled, but it's not troubled for himself. It's not troubled for his own fate. His heart is troubled for the very person who's about to betray him, the person who's about to kill him. And how beautiful is that picture of Jesus's heart? It's not heavy for himself, but it's heavy for the person who's about to hurt him. And so we get into verse 22. The disciples, they look at one another and they're uncertain of whom he spoke. I think Jesus has continued to let us in his heart a little bit because what we're seeing in this moment, you have to understand these disciples, they know one another. They are close. They have intimate relationships with each other. They've experienced the coolest and the most sweetest moments with Jesus. And so if there was any doubt or any hesitation at any given moment that one of these men were about to betray Jesus, they would have seen it. They would have caught on to it. But yet the text tells us that the disciples, they look at one another and they're uncertain of whom he spoke. And what I love about this text is because what we see is that Jesus, he's the only one in the room that knows the heart of Judas. He's the only one in the room in that moment that knows exactly what Judas is gonna do. And Jesus doesn't push him away. Jesus doesn't put him on blast and say, hey, everyone, it's him. Like, it's, it's this guy, because here's what happens. If Jesus would have done that, I can guarantee you those disciples would have taken Judas out in that moment. But yet, Jesus, the only one in the room, the only one in this moment, it's time, he's looking over saying, I know what you're going to do. And he doesn't push him away. And what we begin to see in this text as we experience this upper room is that we begin to see the heart of Jesus. Don't miss it. That Judas's heart is full of darkness and yet Jesus is pursuing the darkness. He's pursuing him and he's showing up and he's loving him. We see this through the text. We even see this early on, right? When Jesus washes the disciples' feet, the scripture says that Jesus, he begins to wash their feet and after he's washing each of their feet, he gets to Peter and with Peter, he has this encounter where Peter tells Jesus, hey, don't wash me. And then Jesus said, if you want to be a part of what I'm doing, then I must wash you. And he said, then wash also my head, wash also my hands. And Jesus looks at him and says, hey, those who've already had a bath are already clean, but not all of you are clean. And Jesus in this moment, he's referring to Judas. And can you imagine this moment? Can you imagine just being in the room? Can you imagine being Judas in this moment as you stand there and as Jesus gets down, as he begins to wash Judas's feet, that they're making eye contact. And Judas is looking at Jesus and Jesus is looking at him and he's saying, I know what's in your heart. I know what you're gonna do. And yet he's still there showing this unconditional love to Judas. He's meeting him. He's loving him regardless of the darkness, regardless of what Judas knows is gonna happen, that Jesus knows is gonna happen. He doesn't stop showing up with love for his disciple. And so we get into verse 23. One of his disciples whom Jesus loved was reclining at the table at Jesus's side. And so Simon Peter, he motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. And so that disciple leaning back against Jesus said to him, Lord, who is it? 
Listen, we have to pay attention to the details because there's even great significance in what's happening in this moment. Scholars would say that the way the table assignments would have gone would have been Judas, Jesus, and John all sitting next together. And so traditionally at a meal like this, at a Passover meal, what you have is this U-shaped table that is kind of, they're all kind of gathered around it. And how these people would sit at this table is that they would have this little sofa that they would sit on. And as they sit on the sofa, they kind of recline onto their left shoulder as they eat with their right hand. The text says that the disciple whom loved Jesus was reclining at the table at Jesus' side. So I think the evidence of the scripture would help point to this to be true. And so even at this moment, you have to think about this, that if this is true, if this is how they're reclining at the table, that now you have Jesus reclining into the chest of Judas. And then you have John reclining into the chest of Jesus. It's almost as if they were to come into this meal together that you would think that Jesus intentionally, he had to put him by his side. Like he wanted both these men to come and to sit next to him at the seat of honor at this table to be with Jesus. I don't think it just happens by chance. And so we know for a fact that John was next to his side. And as we begin to unpack the text, we're going to see that Judas had to be really close to Jesus for the things that unfold to take place. And so scholars would say that they were right next to one another at this table as they eat together, having this moment, having this encounter. And the love of Jesus is still showing up in the darkness. And the disciples don't have a clue. Yet Jesus does. And so I love this text. It's almost as if you can imagine this at your own table where they're sitting together and one of the disciples, they're they're uncertain, right? And it says, Peter, he looks over at John, the beloved disciple. And it's like, he's trying to get his attention. He's like, hey, hey, John, John, like ask Jesus who it was, right? And and it's like, you can imagine. So it's so Peter's personality. It's like, hey, ask him, like see what he says. And so John, he looks up at Jesus and he says, Lord, who is it? Lord, who is it? And so verse 26, Jesus answers. He says, it is whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. And so when he dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. And so just an important thing to understand as we look at the culture of this passage, that typically when you had a morsel and you were to dip it and to give it to somebody, that would be a sign of great honor. It was a sign of friendship. It was a sign of love. It was a sign of respect. Yet in this moment, the thing that he's doing is as he dips this into the the, the wine that's believed to be there and he hands it over to Judas, this is symbolizing, this is showing, it's answering the question of the disciples of whom is about to betray Jesus. And so we see this like in, in Ruth chapter two, verse 14, where Ruth invites Boaz into his home, or Boaz invites Ruth into his home, I'm sorry. And as they're reclining together and they're having dinner, that it says that he dips the morsel into it and he gives it to her as a sign of this friendship. And so what would have been such a beautiful picture of honor and love and respect was actually revealing the very one who was gonna betray Jesus. In that moment, the disciples don't understand. And so Jesus, he quietly answers the question of the disciples by handing it to Judas. And what I want you to think about for a moment is this. Like we know this has taken place. Right now we know that Jesus has just washed the feet of his disciples. And right now we know they're together at a table and they're talking with one another. 
In Mark chapter 14, it talks about this moment taking place. And then right after this moment in Mark chapter 14, it talks about how Jesus then taking these elements, he takes the bread and he says, this is my body for you. And then he takes the cup and says, this is my blood poured out for you. And that you would take these things and you would do them in remembrance of me. And so we know this event's about to take place. We know at this table, there's gonna be this moment where Jesus uses the bread as a representation of the very events that are gonna take place for him. Yet before that, what we know is that Jesus, he grabs a piece of bread off the table and he dips it and he hands it to Judas. Think about that. Is it a coincidence that Jesus chose to use bread and wine to be the very symbol of what he was handing over to Judas? I don't know. But I know that many would believe that this was one last attempt for for Jesus to show Judas love. It was one last attempt. And what we see is this, is that in that moment, Judas, he takes the bread, but he doesn't receive the love that it came with. Hear that again, that Judas, he's able to take the bread, but he doesn't receive the love with which Jesus offered it. And so now as we get into verse 27, we see the departure of Judas, that we know that Judas is going to leave. And so it says in verse 27, then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. And Jesus said to him, what you're going to do, do quickly. So verse 27, right, Satan enters into him. And so what we do know about this is that earlier in the scripture that John has pointed that the devil had already prompted Judas to do these things. So what becomes clear for us in this text is that we see that, that Judas is not acting alone, that he's not been acting alone from the beginning, that, that Satan has come inside and he's doing something in him and we don't fully understand, but what we begin to see is that he's not acting alone. And so with each act of compassion, with each step of movement that Jesus begins to bring to Judas as he's moving towards him in the darkness, as he's showing him love, as he's showing him the compassion of washing his feet, with each passing moment, Judas's heart is growing colder and more distant away from the Lord. Yet what we see is Jesus never stops moving to him. He never stops moving to him. And so Jesus tells him, hey, what you're going to do, do it quickly. Do it quickly. And so in verse 28, now no one at the table knew why he had said this to him. Some thought because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast or that he should give something to the poor. And so after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out and it was night. You see, John, he lets us know two things here that John tells us the disciples are still clueless about what's happening. And we're getting closer into this moment. In fact, this is why we believe that Judas would have been so close to Jesus in this moment because the disciples, they still don't understand. I don't, I don't get it. Like John asked the question, who is it? And Jesus says, it's the one that I give this bread to. And yet still in this moment, somehow the, the disciples, they don't know. They don't, they don't see what's happening. And so perhaps you know, as, as they know that Judas has the money bag. And so perhaps Judas is going to go buy more supplies for the food. Like how innocent are the hearts of the disciples? Oh, he's going to get more, more food. Maybe we need some more bread or like we need something for this feast that we're having. Perhaps that is what Jesus is doing right now. 
Or John says, perhaps maybe they, they thought that the disciples thought maybe he was going to give to the poor, that it was common in Jewish customs during the Passover time that people would give money to the poor. And so maybe that's what Judas is doing right now. Both would have made sense. And yet in this moment, they are still clueless about what's happening. The second thing that John shows us is that it, as he leaves the room, that it was night, that it was dark outside. And so as we have been studying the book of John, that we see the correlation of light and darkness and that we know that darkness can be this picture of evil. And I would most certainly say that it wasn't just dark outside, but Judas's heart was dark and it was evil and he was convinced of what he was gonna do and he had already made his mind up. And so as Judas walks out of the room, what begins to happen is that this, this thing, this thing that Jesus knew was coming, the thing that Jesus had been speaking about since chapter 12 of his glorification, all of these things that Jesus knew that yet his disciples did not understand have now been set into motion that the very son of God is gonna be put to death on the cross. So Jesus is looking at his disciples as, as Judas walks out of the room. You gotta begin to think, what do you think Jesus is feeling in that moment right now? that his time is coming, he knows it's happening. And so just for you, just for a moment, I want you to imagine, picture this for yourself. If you found out that you only had 24 hours to live and you were to gather your family into the living room and you're gonna let them know that in 24 hours, you're not gonna be here anymore. How would you talk to your children? What would you say to them? How would you prepare them for life without you? Because this is what's happening in this moment. This is what Jesus is beginning to do, that he has to prepare his disciples for some of the most horrific events that take place, that he has to get them ready for all the things that are gonna happen and he is running out of time and he has less than 24 hours to do it. This is the weight of what Jesus is experiencing. And so what begins to happen throughout the rest of John is we see this intimate picture of Jesus is pouring out his heart to the disciples, helping them see and understand, please know what's gonna happen now. And so as we get into our text, right, as we continue verse 31 through 38, that we begin to see the way we move forward. And so Jesus, he's like grabbing these 11 men, he's pulling them together and he's saying, guys, please come here. I have to tell you what you need to know. <laughs> I have to prepare your hearts for what is about to happen. And so I want you to imagine as we change the scene now, as Judas is out of the room, it's as if Jesus can finally say things now that he can't say or he couldn't say when Judas was there. And so now he begins to talk to them and there's this passion and excitement and this overwhelming amount of love that begins to grip this narrative. And he's saying, would you please listen to what I have to tell you? Because my time is coming. And what we begin to experience is one last demonstration of love that Jesus has been demonstrating love all throughout the upper room. But now this is a love they've never experienced before. It's a love they've never seen. It's a sacrificial kind of love that Jesus is saying, let me tell you about it. So verse 31. When he had gone out, Jesus said to them, now is the son of man glorified and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him and himself and glorify him at once. Five different times in these two verses, Jesus begins to speak of this glory. 
And if we remember what Lloyd taught a few weeks ago in John chapter 12, as Jesus begins to speak at the glorification, that it's all about his death. It's all about the resurrection of Jesus and that God will soon glorify his son through his death and that God will receive the glory and we all receive salvation. It's like we go back to John 3, 16, when, when Jesus begins to say, these things, right? For God so loved the world, he sent his one and only son that whoever believed in him may not perish but have eternal life. It's now coming to the picture. It's now time for these things to take place. And so would you know, it's all about the glory of God. He's referring to his resurrection. He's referring to this ascension. And so one Bible writer says it like this, that Jesus will soon glorify God by submitting to his will and fulfilling his hour of destiny that God will glorify Jesus by making the cross the final victory over Satan. And in this moment, salvation being made available to all. And so he's kind of telling his disciples, hey, listen, it's all about God bringing me here for this purpose that I'm gonna die, that I'm gonna suffer and I'm gonna be resurrected and it's gonna be a glorious picture. But you have to imagine the disciples in this moment, as we know, as we read different gospel accounts, they begin to scratch their head and think, what are you saying? What do you mean? This isn't the plan that we had. This is what we talked about. This is not what we imagined you doing. That we thought you were just gonna snap your fingers and all of a sudden the kingdom was yours and it was all glorious, but you're saying that you must die and you must suffer? And we see Peter in this moment, right? This is where Peter, he's always acting this way. Like, no, let me do that for you. And he's like, no. What I'm doing, I must be the one to do it. And so as we get into verse 33, we see Jesus and he says, little children, yet a little while I'm with you, you will seek me. And just as I said to the Jews, so now I say to you where I am going, you cannot come. Do you guys see it? Do you see as he begins to address these disciples He's not calling them little children as he looks down upon them. He's calling them little children because they feel like they're his own. If we were to imagine that, just go back to that scene as you're in the living room and you're grabbing your kids together and you're saying, listen, listen, where I'm going, you cannot come. Do you understand what's about to happen to me? Little children, do you understand that I am about to leave you? And where I'm going, you cannot come. You see, we see this previous text earlier in John chapter seven and chapter eight, where Jesus has this same kind of conversation with the Jews. And he tells the Jews, hey, where I'm going, you cannot come because you have rejected me. You have rejected the name of Jesus. And so you will not come. But we know this isn't the case for the disciples. So in that moment, he wants them to understand, hey, listen, what I have to do, only I can do. But we'll see later on in John that he says, soon you will join me. Soon you'll get to come. But right now what I need to do is what only I can do for you. And so now we move forward and this is kind of where the whole buildup is happening. That Jesus is preparing them for his glorification, for his death, for the resurrection, for these, this glorification of what's going to happen and salvation made available to all. <laughs> and as he comes together now, we get to verse 34. And it's almost, almost it's like this whole anticipation is building to this one moment with Jesus and his disciples. And so verse 34, it says, a new commandment I give to you, 
that you love one another just as I have loved you. You are to love one another. He's with them in this moment. Little children, gather around. Where I'm going, you cannot come. But I want you to know a commandment that I give to you. In this moment, Jesus could have commanded them to do anything. But in that moment, as he gathers his little children around, just imagine my children gathered around, and I say, a commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You are to love one another. You see, the commandment here, it's, there's nothing really new about the commandment to love others because we know that in the Old Testament, right, the Israelites were commanded to love their neighbors as themselves. And so much of the struggle of this relationship of loving your neighbors as yourself is that your love is so dependent upon how much you love yourself that I'm only capable at loving others as much as I know to love myself. And so for all of us, there's this struggle, there's this tension, right? Where we can struggle to really love ourselves. We can struggle to really think that Jesus loves us. And so I love the way that Jesus flips this command because it's no longer about your own self-love. The measure is not how well you love yourself, but the measure becomes how much I love you. That you would love others as I have loved you. And so now Jesus is telling his followers to love each other as he loved them. He's raising the, high, the level of love even higher. He's not saying that that commandment's not important. He's saying, but no, I want you to love other people as I have loved you, as I've shown you now for three years, as I've walked with you and as, de- as demonstrated my love for you. And soon you're gonna see the sacrificial love that I have for you like no other, but you would understand that your responsibility, your commandment now is to love one another as I have loved you. The measure of love for others wasn't just based on self-love, but on the love Jesus had demonstrated for them. And so in that moment, in that room, as Jesus moves to the darkness, as he continues to love Judas in the darkest and the most lonely places of his life, that Jesus' love never stops showing up. And the disciples have seen this, they've witnessed this, They've seen Jesus demonstrate love as he's healed the lame and the sick, as he's done these miracles, as he's taught in synagogues. They have seen the teaching and they have experienced it with their own eyes. And he's saying, just as I have loved you, you are to love one another. And so Jesus, his goal in this moment, he's trying to move them from a love that is self-focused to a love that is self-sacrificial. And this is hard for us to do. You know, it's easy for us to love the people in our life that we, you know, bump into every once in a while. But what does it look like to love our spouse the way that Christ loved us? What does it look like to love our children the way that Christ loved us? That we can only do this if we have experienced the love of Christ. That I have tried to love my wife based on my own self-love and I fail at that a lot that I try to love my children based on my own self-love and I fail at that a lot. And so I do believe that's why Jesus is saying, this is a new commandment that I give you, that you love one another as I have loved you because I've demonstrated you and I've showed you what that looks like. Now, would you go love others the way that I love you? And so what we have to understand is that 
the commandment, this new commandment can only be understood in light of Jesus on the cross, in light of what Jesus has done for us. The greatness of his love for us now is the motivation of loving others, that we can love truly and deeply because we have been truly and deeply loved by Jesus himself. That is now the measure. And so my focus and my efforts isn't about being a better person, but it's simply by receiving Jesus's love and understanding what he's done for me and what that means should now propel me to go and to love others. And so Jesus tells him in verse 35, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And so the disciples of Jesus now are to love one another as he loved them. And that love is to mark them. It's to distinguish them that when they walk around that people would know you are a follower of Jesus because the way that you love, it's so clear. It's so clear that there's something in you that doesn't come from yourself, but can only be motivated by Jesus in you. And so Jesus is trying to move his disciples to this place that they would begin to walk in that, that they would begin to experience that. And so as we conclude this morning, I want to invite the band to come back up. You see, Jesus knows that this type of love is no easy task. That we cannot do it on our own. And here's what I want you to understand. And this is about any commandment that Jesus has ever given us. Anything that Jesus has ever asked from us, that you would know this, that Jesus never requires us to do anything that he himself hasn't embodied and empowered us to do through his guidance. It's not like he's asking us to do the impossible. And he never has. And everything that he commands from us, everything that he asks from us is to do the things that he has done, the way that he has empowered us, the way that he's embodied it himself. And so what does that really mean? That when Jesus asks us to do something, he shows us how to do it and he gives us the power to do it. And so we see Jesus, he embodies love all throughout scripture. He embodies it through his actions, his teaching and his sacrificial death on the cross. And that he empowers his love through his Holy Spirit that we'll see later on. That Jesus says, hey, I must go. And as I go, I'm gonna send you a helper that it's better that I go so the helper may come. And so that presence of Jesus, it lives in you and me. And it helps us be able to love people this way. And so if we look at our application this morning, what's the, what's the encouragement for us? How can we begin to love others this way? I want to try to keep this as simple as I can. But the truth is this, the only way that we can begin to show this type of love is by receiving Jesus's love first. The only way that we can show this type of love is if we have received Jesus's love for us first. So if you have your communion elements, I want you guys to get those ready for me. And as we hold these elements in our hands, I want to go back into that room, that night, that moment that Jesus, he sat at this table with his disciples and as he handed the bread to Judas. And in that moment, Judas, he was able to receive the bread, but he didn't receive the love 
that came with it. You see, I think this is where we can get stuck. I think where we fail to love others in this way is because we fail to receive Jesus's love for us. That we fail to believe that Jesus could really love every part of us. And so we know Jesus sent his son to die for us. But could Jesus really meet me in my pain? Can he really meet me in my brokenness? Would he really forgive me of those things that I've done? But as we begin to receive his love, that it changes everything. That just as Jesus is moving to the darkness in Judas's heart, that this morning Jesus is moving to your heart. And he's saying, I give you my life and I give you my love. Would you take both? And so as we take our bread this morning, I want you to understand it's a whole nother thing to do communion each week. But when we stop and we think about what this represents in this moment, it's not just a cup and a piece of bread, but it's the sacrificial love of God giving to us. And so this morning, I don't know what part of your story or where in your life do you need to give yourself some grace that you need to allow yourself to receive the love of Jesus, that we're not always gonna get it right. But what we do know is that Jesus is moving towards us and he is loving us and he is showing us that love. And so this morning, as we take the bread, the, the body of Christ broken for you, would you take it and would you receive the love that comes with it? And as we receive the cup this morning, the blood of Christ spilled out, poured out for you, would you take the cup and would you take the love that comes with it? This morning, we're gonna take some time to worship. And as we do, if you find yourself in this place right now where it's hard for you to accept the love of Jesus, I pray that you would ask that God would show himself to you, that you would receive his presence and his love and that it would change everything for you. And so let's take some time to worship in response into all that God is and all that he's done for us this morning.